Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. Here at Knocking Doors Down, we share the stories of people who overcome adversity. You know that already, but what you may not know is that our partners at the Carlos Vieira Foundation aim to help people who struggle with their own adversities as well. The Carlos Vieira Foundation helps those in need through their Race for Autism, Race to Be Drug Free, and Race to End the Stigma campaigns. You can also choose the Carlos Vieira Foundation as your charitable organization on Amazon Smile to contribute as well. To learn more and support these causes, check out all the info at carlosvierafoundation.org. About an island in your own country in your eyes. This is Knocking Doors Down. Jason here with you. Of course, a background of addiction. Some other traumas and things that uh, qualify me here to have some of these conversations. Of course, with me, the uh, ever-singing, handsomely tattooed, struggled with some substance abuse issues himself, Mike Rocky, What's going on, good sir? May have gotten my time busted a time or two. Yep. Hey, adversity to advantage. That's what we're all about. And today, we've got Chris Jensen. Um, not only, wow, you, uh, from a childhood of addiction and you hear how that codependency can start really early on with stories of uh, essentially keeping his parents out of jail by hiding their drugs pre-warning them and uh, now he's doing amazing work actually helping the youth in our local community where we uh, record the podcast uh, avoid those things overcome those things and it's uh, really amazing how he turned his life around some really great insightful stuff in the conversation too even if you or anyone in your family has not struggled with addiction there is some really powerful stuff that comes out throughout our conversation that uh, could have a great impact on you maybe in just taking a look at life and personal growth Yes, sir. And we thank you guys for listening, of course. Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Podcast, also on Stitcher and uh, iHeart app as well by searching Knocking Doors Down. And don't forget uh, Carlos Vieira Foundation. Go to carlosvierafoundation.org and uh, you can find out more about the three programs, the uh, Race to Be Drug Free, Race to End the Stigma, and uh, Race for Autism. And uh, there's plenty of information there on how you can qualify for scholarships and other funds. And, of course, uh, purchase some of those 5150 Energy drinks that are discounted right now as the uh, production for 5150 Energy drinks has stopped and all the remaining product is being sold to benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Get energized for cheap! (laughs) All right. We'll be back in just a second with Chris Jensen. Chris Jensen, how's it going, my man? Good, thanks for having me. Of course, we got uh, Moreno in the house. We'll have to refer to you as last names that's, here. That's because, fine with me. Good to be back. Because now if we go Chris, it's like two guys. What? what? <laughs> and what? as always, fabulously tattooed, the uh, Schfelt, newly car owning, Mikey Nuraki. What's up, good sir? Damn right. New whip. <laughs> What up, what up? Uh, it so, is nice, it is nice. It Thanks, is nice, man. Yeah, Thank man. You. We're proud of you, dude. That is definition knocking doors down. You set a goal, you got the goal. So this is how it works. You get the car, then you get the chicks, then you get the house. I did a little backwards. Chicks, car, then house. <laughs> chicks, car. Ain't that right, Jensen? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the club on yeah. that shit, right? Uh, so, uh, Chris, man, uh, Jensen, that is, uh, we uh, thank you for coming in here, sharing your story. With the audience, um, you know, really, you are an example of uh, what we do, taking your adversity, making it your advantage. So why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself uh, right now, what you're uh, what you're doing, and we'll kind of go all the way back to that childhood and jump into that. 
Sounds good. So right now I have the pleasure of program planning of prevention programs for alcohol and drug abuse, specifically targeting kids that grew up or are growing up in a household similar that I grew up to. get to do it all over the community, work with a variety of young people and adults to make it happen. And uh, I'm really lucky that I'm in a position to do that because not everybody that has the life that I had uh, gets gets to come out of that on the other side and actually uh, give back to the community like yeah, we're doing now. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's definitely uh, something to be be proud of for sure. So why don't you talk about Chris Jensen, the little kid, man? What was uh, what yeah. were you like? Were you a rambunctious little dude? or? Uh... Yeah, I think I set the stage for defining ADHD when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I had Before a lot ADHD of... was a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So, um, so I grew up actually... Uh, fascinating enough my parents met in a drug rehab so I guess I was kind of destined to live the life I lived and then end up working in the field I did Um, and growing up in that household um, of using parents and and friends using coming in and out um, a lot of turmoil a lot of chaos Um, it really set early uh, the need to act on fight or flight so constantly being you know on the lookout keeping your head on a swivel if you will Um, and a lot of uncertainty in a time in my life where I should have had a lot of uh, connection, certainty, and consistency. And those things weren't there. So it was really, really tough. Uh, Born in the Bay Area, for those of you that are familiar, Fremont, Hayward, New York, we moved all around there. Um, Parents' use ended up placing me and my siblings in foster care at a young age. And so we uh, we lived with a variety of people. Some of the homes, you hear horror stories about foster care. Some of the sure. homes were horrible. Some of them were way better than anything I could have imagined at that point in time. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so. Did you remain any sort of contact at all with any of the, the foster folks as you went into adulthood that, that were any of the positive environments? Yeah, so um, later in life when I was about eight, uh, no, excuse me, 10, we moved to Merced. Um, okay. We, uh, the family decided that they needed a break from the Bay Area and that the location was a problem that was causing the drug use. So we moved to good old Merced where there was no drug or alcohol issues, right? <laughs> and uh, yeah, no. you know, now, When you say we, this is this is your, your parents? Parents, yeah. Okay. Biological parents. We, we, uh, we moved up and moved to Merced and eventually, you know, the drug addiction found them here too in, the, in these communities. And so... Um, I had met a friend in school and become pretty close with them and and was doing some sport events and activities with them. And the mom really took a liking to us, um, grew to be really close with that family. And she actually offered uh, to go get an emergency foster care license if, you know, shit hit the fan and my parents ended up locked up for extended periods of time, and which was the case. And so um, Mm -hmm. I had long-term foster uh, guardians. that I lived with from the time I was 10 all the way until I was 18 years old. And I'm still in contact with them today. Actually, we just, uh, my foster sister just celebrated her 40th birthday yesterday. Oh, and wow, so that's nice. awesome. Family went and did like a drive-by, you know, to celebrate <laughs> yeah. with her in these crazy times. But uh, yeah, so I'm still connected there. Um, but like I said, when we moved to Merced, man, it was uh, it was insane. Um, methamphetamine, really high use of methamphetamine, mm-hmm. heroin. Um, I remember, you know, having to walk, get my brother up and ready for school and walk him to the bus stop, make sure he got on the bus, basically being an adult, you know, at six, seven, eight years old, 
um, and then seeing cops come down the the street and running in the house and putting all the syringes and the spoons and the bottle caps and all that into baggies and then running up into the attic and hiding them so mom and dad didn't go to jail. Holy so it shit. was wow. it was it was crazy. Um, yeah, growing up in a in a home of addiction, it definitely um, pushes us to adulthood and adulthood actions way mm-hmm. too prematurely absolutely um, because you know our brain's not even close to form to being able to differentiate right from wrong but yet he still at that young age knew that his parents were going to go jail if he didn't clean this up and did the responsible thing at that young age you knew more and had more common sense well i don't know that responsible is a word i'm going to throw i'm going to debate well. this codependent <laughs> yeah, is we become a part sure. of that codependent system that we help the user continue mm-hmm. to do what they do enabling yep. enabling yeah. yeah what age was that chris when you were hiding the needles uh, it was about eight for seven to ten years old while we were in merced no shit um so we took that on and um you know most kids they go out into the country or or maybe their backyard if it's big enough or who knows their closet and they create little booby traps traps for each other mm-hmm. and things like yeah. that and you know that was when home alone had just come out <laughs> yeah. in the early 90s. so we were like little macaulay culkins you know and we would set up booby traps to try to alert our parents of when cops were coming in the house yeah. so we would have string fishing string you know and bows and arrows i mean locked and loaded in the backyard to shoot Holy at the gate shit. if somebody came through our gate it was it was a crazy childhood damn for sure trying to protect us you know and um one thing that that i struggled with was i knew the things that my parents were doing were bad but um i still loved them yeah. I was yeah. still connected to my parents, you know, even being in and out of foster care, I was already bonded to them. Um, I loved them and I would go to school and uh, I would show up late and I would be in tattered clothes, you know, and my hair a mess, probably didn't have a haircut. And um, I would get in trouble. You know, I talked about that ADHD, you know, childhood <laughs> <Acting> characteristics. <laughs> yeah, but I, w- I was in school when they, other kids were trying to learn their multiplication tables. I was wondering if my mom and dad were going to end up locked up or beat up or, you know, robbed right. throughout the day. So I was a little preoccupied um, at school. And I remember getting in trouble and the teacher talking about my parents. You know, wow. when I was sitting outside the classroom, teachers wow. going, you know, that's the kind of parents you don't want to have because that's the kind of kid you end up with. And this, talking to my peers. So there was a lot of shame and guilt, which eventually turned into a distrust of authority. Oh, you know? absolutely. So knowing that, you know, people that should have been protecting me or that I should have felt felt protected from CPS, police officers, firefighters, teachers, these are all the people that if I let know what was going on at home, took part in removing me from that home that I knew and loved. Right. You know, even though it was a dangerous place and that was the right thing for them to do, it still gave me a F the system attitude yeah. as a young person. I, I could only <coughs> imagine, I mean, you know, I think we've all been through those those things. And I, you know, I have a relatable story to, to that uh, due to uh, some learning disabilities, which uh, didn't end up diagnosed with dyslexia until like eighth grade. Wow. But going through that type of stuff too, Whereas these people that you want to trust and they end up putting a shame on you as opposed to uh, sitting down. I mean, was there ever a point that any teacher or authority figure went, Chris, what, what's going on? You know, and how can we help? And, you know, because it's, I mean, I know you working in it now, you have a total different insight than when you're an eight to 10 year old kid. And like you said, all you want to do is love your parents. Yeah. Yeah, so I did, um, you know, being part of foster care, some of the stuff that they throw out you is therapy, you know, um, counseling at school and things right. like that. 
Um, and I had some social workers that were awesome, you know, um, even though they didn't know how to, or maybe they did and it just didn't take, they didn't know how to allow me to process those emotions and those mental, you know, challenges that I was going through being raised in that environment. But I'll never forget, and I wish I remembered his name because I would love to give him props for it, but I had a social worker that paid 45 bucks that we didn't have to put me into popcorn or football. <laughs> and I fell in love playing that game. Um, and I ended up playing um, throughout high school and middle school, and just uh, that was an outlet for me, you know, yeah. being able to physically release tension on another human being and not get in trouble for it <laughs> um, was was a pretty safe outlet for me um and so sports of all kinds ended up being a love in my life um and uh gave me a safe place to be constructive you know release tension and so coaches you know several coaches that i had growing up um, didn't necessarily know the whole story of what was going on at home or the background right. of you know that i was in long-term foster care and who's you know i'm at sporting events and i got you know senior night they ask your parents to come down with and walk with you on the court or the football right. field i always had four sets of everything you know <laughs> i had four parents i got you know eight <laughs> grandparents you know i got all this stuff and so my friends and coaches and whatnot would always try to be putting this puzzle together in the back of their head. And the cool thing about that was that even though, and I, we'll get to this in a second because my parents ended up getting clean and sober and right. ended up back in my life in high school. Oh, thank goodness. And, um, you know, the cool thing about that is that I had my biological parents back in my life and there was no tension to, you know, take us back or anything like that. They knew that we were in a safe place right. and they needed time to get their life back on track, you know, because right. when you get clean or sober, it doesn't just automatically, you know, s flip a switch and then you're all the all of a sudden successful. No, because, it, you know, really for anyone that's, that's um, not gone through it and, and tell me with your experience, Chris, I know for me, uh, mine didn't happen until later in life. Uh, I think it's about 18, 19, and my dad's been sober a little over 20 years, if I'm, if awesome. I'm got the timeline. Yeah, thank goodness, because he's a beautiful man sober yeah. now. He was a son of a bitch when he sure. wasn't, sure. And, and, you know, admittedly. Um, but the whole paradigm, because, you, you know, people think about, like, your family structure, uh, Mikey and, and Chris, uh, think about your family structure, and then if – hear what Chris has said and tell me if I'm online here sure. uh, is all of a sudden it all flips the way that they work the way that they respond you're so used to if I do A parents respond B mm -hmm. and when that all flips it really kind of fucks you up Yeah, because it's like everything we did was this horse shit structure way surrounded for you to, to use in dope right for sure. And and it, it throws you off. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful that you had, and hopefully there's more great foster families out there that are helping folks. But, you know, can you kind of talk on that, what that change in the rebuilding of the relationship with your folks Absolutely. was like? Absolutely, yeah. So what, it's, it's funny that you say that. So one thing that comes to mm -hmm. mind is I remember when, uh, when my dad was in prison, he ended up going away for a couple of years. And so it was just us and our mother living together. And bless my mom, you know, my biological mom, um, she had her hands full, me and my brother exactly alike, super high strung, you know, high maintenance. And we were living in a, you know, underprivileged area of town, sure. a lot of need, not a lot of resources. And so we came up with our own devices to stay busy, you know. And uh, so she had her hands full, plus dealing with an addiction. I remember one time we got in, a, in an argument. This is at eight years old. And I remember telling her, you know, if you if you don't stop using, trying to threaten her. If you don't stop using, I'm going to call the police. And I remember her handing me the phone and saying, I dare you 
to call the police, you know? And so just that, and that's what like a child would do, you know, a parent trying to set a a boundary for a child. And then the parent, the child, the little toddler throws a temper tantrum. I dare you to do it, you know? And those roles were reversed, you know, growing up. And so um, when I turned 18 years old, my parents had uh, several years clean and it was, it was a beautiful experience, you know, when they got cleaned up, they both went to programs here locally in Merced County. And, uh, you know, being able to be a part of their recovery process. So when they got 30 day chips, you know, I'd go to those meetings and, uh, have cake with them and, and sit around and drink coffee, you know, with the, with the fellowship, if it was AA or NA. And, um, so I was able to kind of watch them grow and turn into these different people. But the funny thing is after high school, I decided, you know, I want to rebuild a relationship that I never really had with my parents. And so I'm going to move back in with them. So after I aged out of the foster care system, I moved back in with my biological parents who all three of us were now going to college um, here locally. (laughs) And so my parents were technically my roommates, my college roommates, you know, (laughs) and uh, emotionally, one of the things that happens is when you start using, you stop developing emotionally because you're in this constant um, need, you know, this compulsion to use. And that's the only thing in your brain that's really building. Um, nothing else is building and developing the way it's supposed to. So my parents are, you know, in their late 30s, but they have the emotional development of, of a 15, 16-year-old from when they started using. Right. And so here I am, 18, 19 years old, still a little bit more emotionally mature than my parents are, you know. And so we would do the typical thing, who ate the last bowl of freaking ice cream? <laughs> you know, you guys don't think about anybody but yourself, you right. know. And so um, we had those typical, you know, roommate uh, issues, but it was it was awesome to be able to grow up together. Um, and uh, so my parents' story is pretty cool in that they didn't know what to do. You know, they had done nothing in their adult life other than use drugs and have, you know, side gigs here and there just to get yeah. some money. And so they went to college and asked, you know, what, what type of fields of study do you guys have? And uh, one of the counselors out there said, we have a psychology program called Addiction Studies. And that kind of triggered my mom's interest. And she said, well, what's that about? And she said, well, you get to learn about drugs and pharmacology and the process of addiction. And my mom was like, whoa, no way. They'll pay. Not only can you learn about this stuff legally, (laughs) but they'll actually pay you financial aid to do it. And so uh, she signed up for Addiction Studies. and, And shortly after, my dad followed suit. And they both graduated in a couple of years with honors. Um, they were part of some Sigma something, you know, honorary right. society through the college. And um, and they became certified alcohol and drug counselors and started working for Merced County. Uh, and one of the, the interesting stories about my mom is, you know, she here's this woman who's lost all three of her children through her drug addiction to foster yeah. care or adoption. My youngest brother was adopted out right out of the hospital, oh, put up for adoption. Shit. He was born with six different drugs in his system. My mom was arrested, you know, on the gurney oh in the God. hospital. And um, so we didn't see him for years. We we lost contact with him. The parents that adopted him ended up strung out on methamphetamine themselves. And <sighs> he ended up running the streets at 14, 15, 16 years old, hadn't been to school in three or four years. So while I'm living with my mom, or let me backtrack a little bit. My mom, when she was in rehabilitation, uh, they had to go, it was a faith-based recovery program, and they had to try different um, denominations of religion as part of their treatment. 
So she went to this one where they had visions and they spoke in tongues and things like that. And and this lady put her hands on my mom and had a vision and said, one day you're going to nurture and care for kids that have babies that are addicted. And my mom was like, you know, I'm this drug addicted mother who can't even take care of my own kids. You know, I don't even have my kids. You know, three of them or all three of my boys are gone. And uh, so years later, fast forward, uh, we're going to college. You know, my parents graduate. She gets a job for this program in Merced County to help teens recover from addiction. And she's doing a group one day, and this vision comes back to her of this lady that kind of, like, put her hands on her and had this vision. And she goes, oh, my God, you guys, you're my drug-addicted babies. I'm supposed to be caring for you. And the kids are like, whoa, lady, what do you want? You know, like, you're you're waking us up right now. You're having a trip back of that flashback. Yeah, exactly. So – um, so a little bit after a little couple years after that, um, I'd say, you know, probably uh, 2004, um, my mom's working at this this treatment center. My dad's working at a treatment center and my mom gets a call out of nowhere. And it's this young teen boy. And he says, you know, is this Dana Jensen? And she said, yeah, it is. And he said, my name's Jared and um, I'm living on the streets of Tracy. I'm strung out on methamphetamine. I heard you're a counselor and I believe you're my biological mother. Oh, wow. And, uh, Gave me chills. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, my mom, who lost him to adoption immediately when he was born, went and got an emergency foster care license herself to drive to Manteca, pick up my brother off the streets, bring him back to Merced, get him enrolled in school, get him into a re- wow. rehabilitation program, and nurture him back to health. Um, and that brother is now leading the front right now in Merced County with uh, the COVID stuff with the homeless to try to protect wow. them, one of our most vulnerable populations. And he's been clean and sober for several years now. And um, just the, the things, the way things have kind of come full circle for our family are kind of insane, really. That's incredible. Yeah, uh, it is. Well, sorry, that got me. Uh, but, it, it, I mean, it goes to show that our – it's kind of become a theme. Our our greatest adversity becomes our greatest advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's kind of mind blowing of how things and life and the timeline can can meet up and just it's unreal. Yeah, and when he first came here, so um, you know, think I was on track to do a totally different career, and then when my parents got into the field of addiction and treatment. Um, a opportunity opened up for me to do some some DJing gigs and some kind of yeah. alternatives for kids, you know, after yeah. school activities and yeah. programming. And I completely fell in love, you know, with this concept of like being this kid that overcame this adversity, grew up in this lifestyle, and then helping these other kids that are growing up in the same way. Um, what I never did do, though, is overcome my own kind of trauma from yeah. my childhood. And so... You know, um, whether it was relationships, whether it was the lack of uh, fulfillment in my job or whatever, um, you know, I turned 21, I started hanging out with folks, started drinking, um, and I should have known that I had a problem immediately because whenever I drank, I overdid it. Right. You know, if you know the definition of weekend warrior, that was me. Um, whenever I drank, I would end up trying other things. I would end up um, passing out. I would end up doing things that I didn't remember doing and people coming up to me, you know, the next day and saying like, dude, you need to get yourself under control. You know, I, yeah. you know, I love you. I care about you. You're a good dude, but you're going down a bad path. And so over the next, probably from two, over the next two, three years, um, I went back and forth from being stable to completely unstable, you know, in my own, um, process of recovery. And so 
I too ended up developing my own addiction. Um, And, uh, you know, some, you know, Chris and Mikey, I've seen these guys, you know, throughout that process. And um, they, you know, have had glimpses of where I was. And um, and today, you know, the last time I used anything was September 26th of 2006. And so um, coming up on uh, 14 years that's this awesome. year, this September. Congratulations. Yeah, that's great. So that's Thank awesome. you. Uh, Thank the, you. These two poor bastards have had to encounter it with both of us, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know. Well, I think with addiction, uh, you know, it's, you know, even with these shows that are out there that cover addiction and drug drug addiction and specifically a lot more, it's, it's lo- a lot less taboo than it's ever been before. Oh, yeah. But I think that there's still um, this issue of, you know, we all know somebody that uses, but we there's even less of us that want to call it addiction sure you know what i mean so even though it's common it's really hard for folks to say you know what i think i have a problem um and i know for me that was my struggle because i grew up in a household where my mom was slamming dope in her neck you know and asking me to piss in a medicine bottle so she could pass pass a probation test um and i never got to that point and I had a sponsor, you know, I, I went through um, the 12-step program of NA, and I still go to meetings to keep myself sane. And I had a sponsor one time that said, Chris, you need to focus on the things that you never were allowed to gain because of your addiction. You didn't lose anything because you didn't have a wife yeah. that loved you in the first place to even marry you. Yeah. You didn't have a job stable enough to get a house. You didn't have kids. You know, you didn't have these things to lose, but you also never gave your chan- yourself a chance to get them. Yeah, and that was kind of a a moment where I was like, "Wow, you're so right." Well, it's that, it's that that lack of ability to have a vision of self because once right. our brain starts to develop, uh, coming from addiction and in, into adulthood, uh, you know, I just know for me, it's like I've always joked, I failed upwards because <laughs> uh, it's like I didn't have a plan. Yeah, right, I I wasn't you know really well put together with anything, right. but here I am, you know, great kids, unfortunately, divorce, nice home, decent mm-hmm. car, all these things, and it's it's just the the the, the weird thing of never overall having a vision of it, um, which makes me wonder what was it like once you entered adulthood the big word of of trust because you talked about Mm. it when it came to authority figures but then what about for you when it came to any sort of intimacy was that always a self-destruct mode as well or was it just as a result of the the, uh, addiction that people just kind of pissed off for lack of a better yeah i think for me one of the biggest things that i had to deal with and it's still struggle today you know my journey's not over um was being trust worthy myself um that helps you know they always talk about the one that's suspicious of the spouse cheating as the one that you got to be worried about doing the cheating you (laughs) know the guilty Um, conscience exactly and so for me um you know growing up and seeing my mom and dad you know sleep with other people knowing that they were supposed to be together you know um i had a lot of distrust in relationships and that led to several great relationships being ruined you know um so for me, uh, one of the things that I had to do was be willing to surrender and let go. Um, I had, I actually, uh, in one of the recovery programs that I went worked in, there was a, a person that was uh, practicing Buddhism, and he we were talking about this concept of control mm-hmm. and how you know even for me my drinking was a form of me trying to regain control over my life. Yep. You know I'm going to control how much how intoxicated I become. Yep. I failed every single time, but that was this false sense of 
control. I was going to control the way I felt because as a kid, I was never able to do that. There was too many exterior factors that were controlling my development. He showed me this thing where he said, he he asked me to put a, a drop of water in my hand. Um, and it created a little puddle and then he had me squeeze it to try to keep it there as firm as I could and I did and as soon as I did it all the little creases because it's an illusion of control would let the water seep out and when I opened my hand there was no water in there and then he poured the puddle back in my hand and he said now I want you to jiggle your hand around to represent the turmoil the trauma all these things that we experience in life and what that does to that water now and so I jiggle my hand a little bit and a drop or two would leave my hand but for the most part it would always return to center and it was just a really mind-blowing kind of example or metaphor of how if we just trust the process this too shall pass you know it is what it is whatever you want to call it you know, have, have a trust that, you know, with balance in life, it will all work out. It'll all come together. But it's when we try to extraneously, like, you know, control these, um, these circumstances in our life to where we end up losing them. And so I saw that again and again in relationships, you know, trying to be, um, you know, I would always use the line, it's not you, it's guys like me that I don't trust. That's why I don't want you going to the club. That's why I don't want you going to the bar. That's why I don't want you going to the concert. You know, it's not, it's not you, honey. It's the guys like me out there, you know, that, Mm -hmm. and which is complete bullshit, right? Like, um, they're adults. They have the conscience and, and frame of mind to whether or not they want to, you know, take up somebody on their advances or walk away. Um, I mean, I know I've been rejected. Not every girl that I, <laughs> I picked up on said yes, you know. Oh, so. I thought I was the only one. No, no, we're, uh, in, we're in the same boat there. So, uh, so yeah, you know, just using manipulation and things because that's the way when you grow up in a household that's dysfunctional, whether it's addiction or otherwise, you learn how to manipulate. You know, sometimes it, it's... it's to your benefit, you know, to be able to stay with those It becomes a coping ones. mechanism. Exactly. It becomes a, exactly. a, because we're trying to survive yeah. and just, you know, unlike other kids that, that you know, and I, and it wasn't that I didn't have moments of, of great clarity with my parents and I have some of those really great childhood like memories, Disney sure. World, Disneyland, baseball games, all yeah. that shit. But, but you're still sitting there and you're, you're, you're trying to survive and, and people don't realize how you, you come to, uh, and it, Tell me if this was for you a hard thing, because it was for me uh, probably about, I think I was about 35 when I got my divorce, was having to um, rework that mechanism in a way that I had to catch myself so I wasn't full of shit. Right. Because it literally was. We did it so long. We were full of shit in a way. We weren't trying to harm anyone. We weren't. We were just trying not to harm ourselves. Right. Exactly. Uh, And and with that, not really let anyone in, not be vulnerable. Uh, You know, what was that process like for you? Because for me, that has been one of the most painful things that still six years later, Mm -hmm. I'm still working on uh, all the time, catching myself of not being full of shit. Right. Well, self-preservation, you know, like whether it's shit, chocolate, drugs, (laughs) clothing, whatever you're filling yourself up with, you know, we do it to try to um, protect ourselves, like you were saying, trying to make ourselves feel good. Um, and so for me, one of the things that I learned early in recovery, um, I chose to start dating a normie who I ended up falling in love with. Mm So, um, you know, I'll always have this kind of envy that she can have a drink and that's it. 
You know, it just right. doesn't make sense to me. Like I've never understood how people could have something that they liked using or drinking or whatever. And then the next morning there's some there. Yeah. I'm like, what planet are you from? <laughs> <laughs> right? I know. Um, uh, you and know so, it's like get the big rum bottle the right. next day. Why does my head hurt? Oh, right. the rum is right. gone. That's right. why, yeah. asshole. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I had to uh, learn that other people didn't have the same disease that I have. You know, and it's not their responsibility to take care of my disease. And so if I'm going to allow someone that has those um, those uh, vices or whatever it is into my life, that's my responsibility. And I can't hold them hostage because of that. And so the same goes for relationships. You know, if I allow somebody into my life, I have to be willing to work on my own defects of character, whether that's mistrust, um, uh, infidelity, whatever it is, so that I don't hold them accountable for my own failings Mm -hmm. and so it's like i said it's a everyday journey you know um i've we've had flare-ups in my marriage i'm married to a wonderful woman um just celebrated 10 years last august and um, we have two beautiful children you know great life but we've had our ups and downs you know and uh, a lot of it has stemmed from my own insecurities you know that i'm still trying to deal with and um sometimes I'm on the highest mountain, you know, ready to roll, ride or die, anybody's with me. And then other times I hit these peak, you know, these valleys that we were talking about before the show. You know, yeah. sometimes it just comes and goes and it's something that I probably live with for the rest of my yeah. life and just take on one issue at a time as yeah. it comes up. Well, and I, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that because uh, Chris Moreno, having worked with me for over a decade and Mikey working with me now, they've both had to deal with those bouts of when that depression hits because I go you know and I've been lucky to have them uh as a support because I just I go to total shit yeah you know and it's and it's a common thing you know Mm -hmm. I've been trying to explain to someone that's come into my life it's a common thing it's it's gonna happen I'm not saying it's okay because it's not okay but you gotta understand what with with the mindset of of how we are people that not only you know have our addiction let alone come from it it's it's mm-hmm. a lot of work to rewire those synapses yeah. and yeah. form new wrinkles in the damn brain and, yeah. and you know it is it is really it is it can be a daily challenge and you never know what's going to cuz you know we uh, when we talked to Brandon Novak uh, Mikey a thing that's always stuck with me that he said Chris was um said uh, lessons learned backwards life lived forward mm-hmm. and with that the forward is the undeterminable future. Yeah. And as addicts, we wanted, like you said, uh, control. My drinking, right. it was because I wanted control. Right. And, it, and it's a thing that we can't fucking control. Right. And it's scary. Yeah. And it's even in our mantra of, you know, uh, uh, control the things you can't. Right. Uh, recognize the things you, you can't control, mm-hmm. and, you know, and know the difference of That's them. Right. And it's such a, a challenge for yeah. us that maybe people that, like you said, a normie, just mm-hmm. doesn't understand. Their brains don't work that way. Thank goodness for them. Right, right. And one of the things that you brought up is, um, that I've learned uh, through my own therapy and recovery process is that, um, you know, when we're growing up in a household of addiction or dysfunction, whatever, you know, the chaos is, is being caused from, when you're traumatized as a kid, your brain stops growing yeah. and, and it solely focuses on uh, the need to survive. And so the frontal cortex, you know, all these attachments and things that we're supposed to be making, it doesn't happen for our own protection. So what what uh, what I've learned over the years is that you know sometimes um, things like anxiety and depression they can come out of nowhere when your life has is at 
the fullest it's ever been, you know? And a lot of times that's because your brain is finally starting to make those connections that it didn't make before. And it's freaking out because you should have had these connections made back when you were, you know, two, three, four, 10 years old. Um, And all of a sudden you're 35, 40 years old and your brain's trying to make these connections because it finally feels safe. And so a lot of times we get hit with this stuff that just seems to come out of nowhere. And it's because we finally have enough resilience in our life or supports or friends or whatever the case may be to allow our brain to relax enough, let go of that kind of fight or flight, you know, agitated state that it has to be in to survive and allow itself to heal. Shit, does that make sense? Goodness. Now, what you just said was like, wow, okay. I'm here all day. I'm here all day. (laughs) I get it now. I'm not even kidding. Now with what Chris Jensen just shared, Mikey, and you know, you, you, both you and Chris Moreno know when I had my last relapse, the losing of my best friend's mom, who was there in my life since I was three years old with what he said, now does it make sense why that would occur when I was on target for like a year and a half? I mean, yeah. if you really think oh, yeah. about it, because mm-hmm. that's what happened to me. I mean, yeah. one of the, the, the dearest like lady just vision of the most giving, wonderful person. And it was that thing because when I had that and these people that I had those bonds that were starting, f- that were those that I trusted mm-hmm. solidified. Um, then when that loss came, that pain yeah. beyond unbearable. I mean, to the point, and and I don't think people maybe that haven't had addiction to where your body, because of your mental and emotional state, physically, mm-hmm. physically feels so much hurt. Yeah. You are just in just total body pain, and you just want it to go away. And then it goes back to that stunted part of your brain yeah. that goes, I know right. the thing I can control. Here I am. Yep. Yeah. Let's 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 go buy a twelve pack, an eighteen pack, or yeah, a bag or 10, whatever it right. is. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Dude, that's, that's crazy. Right. I was in a situation some time ago and let's just say fast forward, I'm not anymore. I'm in a good spot now mm-hmm. and I'm just having a ton of anxiety and you saying that is like fuck. I get it now. <laughs> like that right. makes sense. Yep. Now I don't have anxiety anymore. That's what it is. <laughs> we're good. Yeah, well, it's be- even I think it could be even like smaller things like how we were talking about how sometimes you'll just want to watch a movie and then like all of a sudden you'll just be like super emotional off of oh, watching yeah. some fucking kids movie like Lady and the Tramp or something. <laughs> yeah. You're like, "Why the fuck am I sitting right. here crying over this scene I've seen a million times or whatever?" <laughs> But for whatever reason, it's connecting with you on a, a much more deeper level right. as you've matured for along sure. in life or whatever. For sure. And it catches you off guard in those moments where you're like, oh, fuck, yeah, I get that. Or that's, wow, that's really powerful, you know? Yeah. And I think you have a lot more of those moments as you get older and you, you let, you know, like you said, those kind of those bridges heal yep. in your in your mind and in, you know, the way you deal with stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's not just um, you know because healing is such a huge part of, uh, and that's why I think we call it recovery. Why the word right. recovery is used, mm-hmm. but it you know, in addition to that, is you are now recovering these functions mm-hmm. that we've never been able to use because that part of our brain, as as Chris Jensen and you've been saying, is such that fight or flight mode, mm-hmm. a survival method. And, you know, again, the the scariest part of saying I need help is that, oh, my gosh, I got to abandon all this shit I've used for X amount of my life up until this point. Right. And I remember, you know, I was 24, 26, somewhere around there. I think it was 26 years old. And I remember thinking my life's over. 
if I stop drinking at 26 years old, like shoot me now, yeah. what is there left to do? You know, which, which is a really sad statement if you think about it, because there's so many more things in life <laughs> than, than just being intoxicated. But, you know, 21 to 26 years old, that's a majority of what life, you know, tends yeah. to be about that yeah. college yeah. age. And sure. so for me, I was, you know, having a panic attack, like how am I even gonna meet a woman Right. I don't know if I've ever met, like, hooked up with anybody outside of a, uh, a retail establishment <laughs> that sells alcohol, you know? Right. So, you know, yeah. just awkward things. And yeah. um, funny enough, you know, I, I went from bars to coffee shops. So me and my wife met, you know, our first date was at a Starbucks. Awesome. So, you know, you switch your beverage, but you still got the same one-liners, you know, that right. everybody, you know. Do, do you come here often? Yeah, exactly. Those nice for shoes. Listening too. <laughs> yeah. Is that a double mocha or, am I, you know? You Soy milk in that latte. Uh, right. That's right. Yeah. You guys yeah. met at a coffee shop? <laughs> That's cool. Uh, so we originally met uh, at a brew pub. Actually, same place I met Moreno. Oh, uh, yeah. We were working at the Firehouse Brew Pub. pub. Yeah. And, and Merced oh. opened up uh, years ago. And uh, she was a waitress, and I was a busser. And, uh, yeah, I think Moreno was a waiter or I was a busser. A busser. And, and, oh, we uh, were both bussers. Yeah, so. you guys probably waited on me a lot because I lived just down the street <laughs> yeah. there. So it was a lot yeah. of, you know. Probably. Yeah. We had it, our nifty it, suspenders. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never forget bright red fire hydrant colored suspenders. Oh, yeah, you guys you were know, sharp. With, uh, wow. Yeah, so we we had met there, but we were both in you know toxic relationships ourselves sure. at the time, and so we had just kind of kindled a, a, an acquaintance at that time. And then uh, when I got sober, um, I ended up going back and and living with my parents. Um, they were still doing great, you know, in their recovery, and bought a house and whatnot, and had enough room for me to come kind of couch surf until I got my crap together. And uh, so I'm I'm living there, and uh, I don't know if you guys remember MySpace. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, MySpace. of course, oh, I remember man. MySpace. Oh, yeah. And so um, you know, I'm just surfing MySpace just to try to create you know some type of social network again yeah. that doesn't revolve around drinking. Because you know? it becomes such a, what 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 people are. You know, I want to go back to that real quick before you continue your story. Yeah. Is it people that 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 are normies that don't understand? Is it it's not that everyone else identifies us as the fun party guy and mm -hmm. stuff, but we self-identify and think that's the only thing that brings us connectivity. Exactly. So yeah. who am I now? Yeah. Right. Like exactly. Without this stuff in 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 my system, and so trying to refine myself and uh, still not wanting to be alone, you know, yeah. wanting companionship. And so um, I found Melissa on MySpace and just, you know, she she was looking good as always. And so I just <laughs> threw it out there, you know, hey, would you like to grab some coffee sometime? And she said, sure. And so we met at a Starbucks and we ordered our drinks and we sat down and she goes, so what have you been up to the last six years? And I took a deep breath <laughs> and talked for about 30 minutes straight and told her about my, you know, my dive off the deep end into alcoholism and everything. And she goes, wow. <laughs> you're a pretty honest dude, you know? And yeah. so that was something that she was looking for in a relationship with somebody that to, could just be completely right. upfront, you yeah. know, with their, with their life. She, it was really impressive. Apparently um, she's still with me today. So <laughs> it, um, it worked. Yeah. So that's worked. the hook. Yeah. Just be honest. Just be yourself, man. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as men in particular, we grow up with these, you know, GI Joe figures mm -hmm. and all these, you know, the rock and all this stuff. And it, I got it a rock t-shirt on under my sweatshirt. There you go. Well. I mean, it has <laughs> an effect on who yes. we think we're supposed to be. And we try to portray that with people to where we end up being, you know, 
just facades of who we yeah, really disingenuous. are. Disingenuous. Exactly. And well, so I think when, when I stopped drinking, you know, that's what allowed me to kind of just be who I was because that was right. the only other way I could be comfortable. When I was drinking, I could be whoever the hell you wanted me to be yep. because I was drunk. I didn't give a shit, you know, but when I was sober, it was like, it just felt gross to try to put on a show. You have a different set of standards and you have like a lot of self-respect and uh, respect for your character and your choices that when you're drunk, that that all gets thrown out the window. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll take care of that tomorrow. You know, yeah. You'll take your shirt off the fucking on top (laughs) of a car fucking whatever, right? You don't give a shit. Because both of these guys had partied with me and I am a total mimic. Sure, uh, sure. personality, that was my protection method and yeah. make people laugh. I remember a friend's bachelor party. All right, who's Stone Cold Steve Austin? I'm right. clanking beers together and, you know, <laughs> doubling them back, beer all over me. It's like, yeah, LaChance yeah. is fucking awesome. Right. He's yeah. fun. Goddamn right I am, son, or I'll right. whip your right. ass too, you know? <laughs> and, and, and doing yeah. the whole thing. And so I did. I kind of almost be, it's funny you mentioned that. I hadn't really thought of it. I became a character of myself. Yeah, and, and that's what people knew when I went out. Oh, that guy's going to do voices and be a fucking goofball yep. and nitwit. And it's like, nobody like me now. I'm just guy that's vulnerable. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, I think we become a chameleon. You know, as a kid, mm-hmm. and you you yeah. get in oh, where yeah. you fit in. Well, when... it's like you say that that's part of the think that's that defense mechanism. Yep. is like you adapt to any situation to be like I don't want to experience trauma. I want to fit in. I want to try and you know be find my way to. Be be happy, survive, exactly. and and get a happy response from somebody. Exactly, and a lot of times that's humor. You know, being stupid, yeah. well, people pleasing, dumb shit. We look for a lot. Yeah, we end up very much addicts being people pleasers because we look for that external yeah. validation. Yep. And, yeah, and it's a hard thing to yeah. obtain is is internal validation. And uh, not till recently have I like started standing up for myself and yeah. having barriers. Yeah. So yeah, you meet the misses, Melissa. Yep. Yep. You guys been together. Met, what, uh, met Melissa and uh, I was at, you know, we'd, we had dated consistently for about six to eight months. Um, had had great, um, you know, beginning of our relationship was awesome. And then I remember I took her as my date to my brother's wedding. And uh, I saw her, you know, from all the way across the room. It's really easy to, you know, I'm the type we just talked about, a people pleaser, chameleon yeah. type, a mimic. So I could pretty much get along in a relationship with most girls that I dated because um, I would kind of fit what they needed, you yeah. know, whatever that was. And sure. uh, so it wasn't until I met Melissa that I started looking at someone from who they were when I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always about how that person made me sure. feel. Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. codependent relationship. Oh, well, yeah. They fix me, you know, and it wasn't, it was hard to appreciate them for who they were as a person outside of me. And so I remember seeing her fold silverware in napkins, preparing for my brother's uh, wedding reception with my grandmother and just watching them talk. And that was the first time it wasn't when we were talking or anything like that. That was the first time when she was folding napkins, silverware with my grandmother that I realized I'm in love with that woman and I'm going to marry her one day. (laughs) And so she had come from um, a separated family um, at a young age, her, her, biological parents um, divorced and it was it was as mutual as it could be but um, you know it really affected her dad and so she grew up never wanting to get married never Mm -hmm. wanting to have kids and I remember at the dinner reception uh, we're we're eating at the my brother's wedding reception and I had had this kind of vindiction that like this is the one like Mm -hmm. this is who I need to be with and but we we started off as like we were just going to be like a summer fling 
you know and so <laughs> right nothing I, too serious yeah so i had to kind of set the stage at this dinner because i was like i'm getting these you know copying these serious <laughs> feelings right now i'm about to fall in love with this girl and she's just playing me like some summer playboy you know mm. so so i told her like so do you seriously never want to get married or have kids and she said yeah like i just want to enjoy people's company you know be in a relationship and when it gets old it gets old and we move our separate ways and i said well let's try to enjoy this dinner because this is the last time we're going to be together then because I'm getting serious serious about this relationship, wow. and I don't want to end up. Look you know, at you a, a with the year, balls and right, protection, right, and right. holy shit! And, and um, I'll tell you what, I could never do that. I think that made her fall desperately in love with me because <laughs> she had never had somebody just tell her straight up, like, "You're worth so much. I don't want to waste any time if this isn't going to last because I want to keep you forever." Mm-hmm. And she just melted. Hang you on, know. Chris. Can you repeat that? I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, and it worked. You know, we've like I said, we've had our ups and downs, but um, we got pregnant with my daughter uh, shortly after we we got engaged. Um, and uh, her, my daughter's name is Roxy, and and when I she was it. born, it was it was like the most beautiful miracle I've ever seen. I just burst into tears. You know, yeah. I, I when I was drinking like that, I, that was the first. You know, fatherhood, yeah. um, being a supportive, you know, partner of somebody. Those were the furthest things from my mind. And so, just to be able to see to be in that situation where I could watch something like that take place just blew me away. It is. I, you know, it's kind of, I, I would sit there and think of the, uh, you know, the God that I believe of my knowledge mm-hmm. and like who, how would he or she, uh, I t- tend to lean towards she, issue me uh, a child, let alone two, right. in that experience. Yeah. And, you it, know, it was awesome. I mean, being the first person bare hands to touch right. my children. Yeah. Yeah, so she was born, and uh, shortly after that, 14 months later, my son came along. That's funny, and that, and 13 months apart. Yeah, that man, uh, that, you know, great for the budget. You know, yeah, you get out of diapers relatively quick. <laughs> but other than that, it that is a test to your relationship, man. For yeah. us, you know, when you talk about um, – you know, intimacy and connection, you know, we're on totally different playing fields at that point. You know, I'm like, my daughter's already been born. It's been kind of rough around the edges as far as intimacy goes for like the last six months, you know? And so I'm, you know, and then within the first two months, you know, (laughs) here comes my son. I'm like, damn, man, I just shot myself in the foot. And so the first four years was, was pretty tough. And we had to work a lot on, um, you know, kind of having, rekindling a honeymoon period after sure. kids. Yeah. Because I think it's so That's easy tough. to just get into the mundane of like, okay, who's picking the kids up? Who's yeah, changing yeah. the diaper? Who's doing that? You know, who's you start getting these assigned roles when you yeah. get like pets or children or, or homes and things like that that you have to maintain as a couple that it's easy to become disillusioned that that fire is just going to keep itself lit. Yeah, you have to yeah. be intentional. Every, you know? Everything, yes, I, and, I, and I've seen it so many times with people, especially those that have gone through recovery, you know, be it one or as a couple, mm-hmm. um, and just that, that inability to realize all, all this shit, all these things that are gifts, that are, they're not shit, they're, they're beautiful blessings, mm-hmm. takes a lot of work. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. And, and prior, addicts, we just, we, we want to avoid the hell out of that thing. That's, yeah. You know, we'll, yeah. we'll work and we're resourceful to get what, what our thing <laughs> is. You know, it's like, right. uh, who's got beer? I got 50 cents. Right. Okay, cool. Yep. And then, uh, you know, I'll pay you back next time. What, Do you, you know? really want that backpack? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. We'll find a way to get what we want for sure. Yeah. 
So um, having children was an amazing blessing. Um, and uh, so I was clean. Thankfully, my, my children have never seen me under the influence oh, of God. anything, you know, alcohol, anything. Um, and I let them know that I'm in, in recovery. So they're aware they don't understand um you know, the depths of my disease sure. or anything like that. But they just know that daddy doesn't drink because I turn into somebody I don't want to be yeah. when I drink. And occasionally mommy will have a beer with dinner and they're okay with that, you know? So one of the things that I didn't want to do is be this kind of um, 12 step Nazi and like raise right. these kids right. that are terrified. You know, How do you find of, yourself treading that line as they get older to understand all that yeah. stuff that you don't want to like, you know, like maybe somebody not to make a, a similar comparison, but maybe like in a religious household right. where the parents are very holy rollers and right. the kids, you don't know if you want to necessarily instill that and make them feel like this is the only way. Yeah. Yeah. How, well, I think for I me, know. you know, I've been lucky because I ended up in the field of prevention. So I've learned yeah. some things along the way. And one of the things that I would tell parents is you have to be honest. Don't be the person that shows yeah. the red asphalt DVD and then the fir- because the first time <laughs> right. your kid, you guys remember that? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. I just remembered yeah. it right oh, now. Yeah. I watched <laughs> it in my EMT class again, too. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. two times so, in a lifetime. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so if you go about it like, you, you know, dr- this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, it took me a lot of alcohol before my life was ruined. You know what I mean? And there's tons of people that can drink socially, that can use recreational drugs and have totally successful lives, which, you know, in the program, they say hats off to them, you know, but that's not me. That's funny. I read that Mm -hmm. chapter the other day. That's my disease of alcoholism or addiction is mine. And so for me as a parent, I have to let my kids know that you have a propensity for addiction because you got a lineage of right. people that are unsuccessful drug users and drinkers. But um, your choices are your own and I will be here to support you no matter what direction you go. So, you know, for me, it's more about giving them the facts, yeah. you know, and being okay yeah. with saying, I don't know. Yeah. You know, if they want to try something or they come home and they tried something that I had never heard of or never experienced myself, you know, and them asking me about it, just being up front and saying, I don't know. And not saying like, I tried that and I almost died. I ended up in the emergency room. (sighs) If you didn't, because they're going to know. Yeah. You know, don't d- d- don't my, be full of shit. My kids will call bullshit oh, real yeah. fast. You know, um, oh, yeah. and they're gonna want to know the stories of how you did it. And it, it, the worst thing as a parent is to lose that trust. So for yeah. me, just be open and honest with them. This is the things that I've done. These were my experiences. This is the history of childhood that I had that you didn't that caused me to get carried away with some of this right. stuff. Yep. So it may not be the case for you. If you don't want to do those things and take that chance, more power to you. You know what I mean? Use your time elsewhere. Um, but uh, just make sure that you're you're balanced, you know, with yeah. everything. I so. commend you and your wife on doing that because I think, and, and I've just seen it with some of the, the parents that I interact with, and they're great people, great parents, but it's, it's they, they don't for lack of a better term, want to kill their child's hero perception of them. Sure. Whereas um, I know for me- Yeah, that they're and, just human. Yeah, kind for, of. For, for exactly, humanize them. For right. me and my ex-wife, we've been very communicative with our kids that are now on their way to being 12 and 11 on mm. exactly why we're divorced, mm-hmm. uh, what harms promiscuity brings, uh, mm-hmm. abusing alcohol, the bad decisions that come along with it, drugs, whatever it is. These are all the byproducts that very much could come your way mm-hmm. with consequences right. that you'll have to learn to, to navigate. And, and I know that was an encouraged step for me was 
humanize yourself to them Absolutely. because that's the only way you're going to be able to educate and empower them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And when, you know, they're, it's it's ridiculous for me to think that my kids are never going to try alcohol, um, mm-hmm. possibly experiment with drugs, probably have really rough relationships or friendships, yeah. you know, that mm-hmm. they're going to put them through the ringer around. But um, for me, you know, I want to be the parent that my kid knows that I've had those imperfect experiences so that they believe that I'm someone that they can, cons- yeah. you know, a resource. To. Exactly. I don't want to be put on this pedestal to where my son's like, you know what, um, I got um, – you know, beat up at school, and if I tell my dad, he might beat me up too. Yeah, you know, my dad he's gonna might, think I'm a loser right, now. He, I'm a wimp. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a punk or whatever. Like, I want my kid to know, <coughs> Dad's been in fights. He hasn't won all of them. You know, he, mm-hmm. Dad's been in. I want my daughter to know I haven't been the perfect um, uh, partner in all my relationships mm-hmm. either. So that when she has some rough guy or girl that she's dating, she can come to me and say, "Why do you think they're doing this?" You know, right. because I haven't done it perfect either. Yeah. Yeah, and in in sharing our stories, and I mean that's our intent here, on knocking doors down is to get it out there to so people can relate. We you know um, we had a gentleman, uh, Tony Hoffman, who was on really uh, extreme story with his addiction and went to prison. Of course, people can hear that in the archives. And when him and I were kind of conversing here and gelling mm-hmm. because we've been through similar processes, uh, is is these opportunities now? It's it, and you brought it up earlier is we become our intent is like this is like a big NAAA meeting right. it's like you're not alone right we're all here we all have this connectivity we're all flawed we're all a little screwed up and maybe this is something that's going to help people to get onto that better path and and to be doing something better what you are yeah, you've turned yeah. all this stuff into some great work what, yeah. are, what are you doing now Chris well one of the things that um, I've been able to do is uh, if you guys aren't familiar there's a program uh, I think it's nationwide actually it's called Court Appointed Special Advocates CASA yes, CASA yeah and so yeah. they operate off of volunteers and they have some staff that work to train the volunteers and be advocates for kids in foster care and so the when I first got into this field one of my first assignments was to help put a training together uh, for advocates to learn about not only addiction, but the effects that addiction from parents have on their children and right. how to best step in and be that advocate for them. And so I've got to learn about things like um, trauma-informed care, you know, um, adverse childhood experiences. Um, the California's first Surgeon General, I believe, Nadine Burke Harris, um, she just got uh, nominated last year, I believe. She wrote a book called um, The Deepest Well, and it's all about adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. and how it affects us and our physical health, emotional health, or mental health later in life. Yeah. Um, because of being in that, you know, fight or flight yeah. response at all times. So I've gotten to meet some awesome people that are that work around trauma um, and, and addiction and pass on that knowledge to others is how best they can work with youth going through the same experience. Um, and then developing mentoring programs in our county. So, so important. Being able to connect high school kids with middle school kids that are really struggling and have yeah. that peer support of yeah. that older person, just like we were talking about as a parent that isn't perfect, yeah. but that person that they can a little bit older that they can look up to, ask questions about, you know, and we live in a in a community that's not um, um, the most, you know, well off and, and well yeah. to do and such. Right. So we have a lot of kids that are um, struggling, you know, at home, either financially, emotionally, physically. And so having that peer support is really important, I think, so that they don't go through life believing they're the only one, 
yeah. you know, where it's only them. Well, and, and the programs, NA and AA, prove that. That's why we have a sponsor. Right, right. that's that right. Mentorship is such a vital part of life in yeah. general. Absolutely. Uh, of, of being a mentor or being a mentee and having strong mentorship, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's so, I mean, I, I've personally, you know, again, uh, Carlos Fiera, his book, Knocking Doors Down, that yeah. has spawned this podcast. I've reached out to him at times, hey, mm-hmm. struggling with this. And it could be as, as simple as a, a simple text response or whatever it yeah. is. But those mentorships, um, they're invaluable. I know you mentioned uh, early tra- childhood trauma. Have you worked with Dave Lockridge at all yeah. with Ace Overcomers? Yeah. Great program. Yeah. I, I took the program. Yeah. So I've worked with Dave and we've went back and forth. Actually, uh, I think we met either I was doing a presentation on ACEs or he was doing a presentation on ACEs and, and we met that way. And so we've had some philosophical you know, conversations about um, how to best address it. Um, he has a different approach than than I would take sure. but I, I've been through his classes he has an amazing approach and that's the thing about not only recovery but trauma is that it affects people differently yep. and so what it takes to overcome it is different for all kinds yep. you know some people um, can be on medication and that's sufficient some people need therapy some people need both some people can do a spiritual you know right. walk and, and get through it um, and others need just that constant human contact so yeah. Um, I think all perspectives are really important when we're talking about recovery. Yeah, I don't know about you. I've, I'm the the human contact, and then it's a, a gentleman that came on. He suffered from PTSD. He has a company, and his term is handle it. And I'm one yeah. of those people. It's like now if I see something that's wrong, I just got to take care of it in that moment. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll add to the list of shit that I'm ignoring, yeah. and I'll be overwhelmed. Yeah. And it just goes into that snowball effect. And then here comes something emotional that's going to yeah. fuck with me, and then, you know. Yeah. So it, it it really is because we're all so different personality wise. Yeah, and so I mean, my you know I've been super privileged in my life to end up number one to end up with parents that got it. You know yeah. what I mean? And got back on track. Mm-hmm. Their resources for me. Their re- my you know my parents sponsor so many people and in twelve step programs. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And and um, I've had the ability. That's how you know I got a, a family in to twelve step. You know before <laughs> you know most people are like court referred. Yeah. Or most people yeah. don't just Awkward. walk in. You no. Know, yeah. They don't know anybody unintentionally. They, yeah. You know yeah. it's like somebody's pushing you. You know yeah. to get there. And right. sometimes it is you. But um, I was lucky to already be introduced to Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous long before I had these demons pop up in my own life, you know. And so I knew about that resource. Um, And that was a struggle for me, you know, which can be for a lot of people out there that if they already have a spouse, a significant other, a parent or a child that's using those resources, sometimes it can feel like that's already taken up space by someone else in your life and that you're not welcome there. And uh, because I was always, you know, oh, there's Dana's son, you know, there's Chris's son. And it was never like I was there for me. And so I, you know, one of the things that I did, I started going to men's only meetings. They, they didn't, you know, my mom wasn't going to those. I started going to meetings outside the area where my dad wasn't necessarily going. And I, I formed my own support group through 12 step meetings, you know, to where it was, Hey, there's Chris. It wasn't, there's Chris or Dana's son. Right. You know, and so trying to take that ownership of of my own recovery for myself was uh, detrimental. You know, it was of the utmost importance to my recovery and successful. Yeah. I had had 
probably two or three attempts at just going through meetings by themselves. And it was always like, you know, the social acceptance of alcohol. A lot of people don't see alcohol as dangerous because it's not as taboo as some of the other stuff that people use. And, you know, I can drive from my house to work and pass, you know, four or five quote unquote drug dealers, which right. were liquor stores for me, yeah. right? Yeah. So not mo- most people aren't driving by four to five <laughs> crack houses if they're, you know, addicted to crack on Very their way true. to work. Most yeah. people. Most people. Um, but it's so socially acceptable with alcohol. You know, I can watch, uh, go to a movie theater or put on a TV show and, um, you know, an alcohol commercial comes up. Yep. And uh, it was a long time before I stopped drooling when yeah. I would see commercials like that. Oh you know? yeah, I still um, I'm still at the stage where I get it at times yeah. where it's like oh I'm about to go do yard work or whatever man right. yeah yeah and it still sounds good you know but I remember a time where I didn't think about anything other than that yep you know um, that was kind of when I knew I had a problem when I, when I was drinking to forget what it was like being sober and happy mm-hmm. you know um, I wasn't drinking to enjoy being intoxicated anymore I was drinking to forget what it was like without it in right. my system. Yeah. And that's yeah. when I was like, yep. this is fucked up. Yeah. You know, I've reached a point to where I never thought I could get with alcohol because I always compared my use to my parents' drug addiction. Sure. And, you know, like I said before, I didn't get to that point, but I wasn't allowing any blessings, you know, or, or um, freedoms into my life that I was mm-hmm. earning because of my my use. And so, um, yeah, so it was, it, it took a while. I remember going to meetings and hearing people say, um, I've lost the desire to use. And I was pissed. And I was like, how could you sit there? And I call bullshit. First yeah. of all, I don't <laughs> yeah. think that's true. There's yeah. no way if you're an alcoholic, you cannot lose the desire to use. And I have, I have lost, I can say at this point in my life, and, and it's been years since I thought about um, needing a drink. Yeah. There's occasions after yard work, being out at the pool, you know, something like that. Where, where it would be nice it, to have. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, that looks nice. I'll go to a birthday party. Some people are drinking, you know. Oh, that it would be nice to taste a beer, you know, every mm-hmm. once in a while. But I have, I can't remember the last time where I felt I need like to go to the store to drink and I want to purchase. Yeah, like, I almost need that fiend. to get out of this feeling that I'm feeling yeah. now, and alcohol is the solution. Yeah, I haven't had that because there years. is such a distinction between desire and the need. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You know? So it hasn't come into my the forefront of my mind as the solution to any problem I've had recently, which is amazing because I remember hearing people say that when I first got sober and thinking you're a crock of shit. <laughs> right. You're in the wrong this, meeting, dude. This is some bullshit like, right here. Look, yeah. if I wanted to be lied to, right. I would go to right. the strip club. Exactly. Right? So you're the most handsome thing ever for right. another $100. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's amazing that I've gotten to that point and it's, it's, you know, I wish I could say it was just stuff that I did, but it was because people like me kept the lights on at the AA meeting for me to show yeah. up there. You know what I mean? Um, people like you guys had podcasts and radio shows and et cetera that showcase that alcoholism and drug addiction is normal in our society. And, it, and it's not a shame to get yeah. assistance with it. Um, so it wasn't all me. You know, I took some some suggestions that other people made uh, to me in order to deal with this problem. And so far, you know, fingers crossed, if everything goes as planned, I'll make it through another day as yeah. the sun goes down today. So, And I fully believe you will. And, it's a, and the great thing about what you said there and those suggestions from people are so important because it rebuilds that thing we didn't have, and that's trust. Yep. 
and it starts the process mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's a really moving thing that can can be overwhelming in a way we haven't experienced Absolutely. in a long time yeah so uh, Mikey, Chris, any last questions for Mr. Jensen here? No, I, I just want to thank you for sharing all your story uh, uh, details uh, today, Chris. It was really, you know, illuminating to hear um, a lot of that, and I, I appreciate it. So, thank absolutely, you. thank you. I'd Thanks. like to thank you for adju- or, uh, addressing my anxiety. Appreciate that. <laughs> Feel a little better. Anytime, uh, anytime. And you got my number. Of course, thank you for ha- or being on here. Yeah. Uh, Chris, uh, yeah, from uh, it, it's nice because I haven't been able to do any sort of meetings uh, throughout this time. Of course, when we're recording, a lot of the COVID stuff is going on. So sure. for me, I appreciate it just from uh, someone that uh, I get those anxieties and I can yep. reach out to the people that haven't been there and, and they've been uh, great for me to do that. But it's nice to you know that there's someone else out there and have this um the last, uh, you, you close out. Anything else you want to leave with people that are maybe struggling with addiction, just coming through the f- process? Yeah, I think the most important saying that kind of got me through the beginning was just one day at a time. Just take it one day at a time, one minute at a time, one moment at a time, one situation at a time, and things will be different. They may not all of a sudden get better, but they will definitely get different, and eventually they will get better. So keep up doing the good work, keep fighting the good fight, and just take it one day at a time. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Wow, Mikey. Just wow. Heavy stuff, man. But uh, but bright. Yeah. But bright stuff. It, and it does go to show Chris is uh, just an amazing example that uh, any of this stuff is not insurmountable mm-hmm. at all. And you can get on the other side. You can knock doors down. You can uh, just build a positive life. You just have to have a vision of it. Be willing to ask for help. Take that help and uh, work through it. Whatever the problem is, may not be addiction, might be other stuff, codependency, uh, just depression, anxiety. And of course you, you know, I mean, he talked to you about your anxiety and kind of broke down some of those things while why our brains go there well it was a special one for me because i know chris you know i know his wife i know his kids it's an awesome family and you know it's funny because like you just said he put my anxiety into perspective like when i was going through some shit a couple years ago it's it's almost like my anxiety didn't have time to catch up with me i was in fight mode you know what i mean and now i'm in the best place i could be mentally and now my anxiety is kind of just like whoa 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 fucker we still have some stuff to deal with and you know chris put that into perspective and it was like oh my gosh it makes sense now i get it so thank you again for that mr jensen absolutely and we thank you guys for uh, listening to the knocking doors down podcast don't forget available on apple podcast app google podcast spotify you can go to kddmediacompany.com click the podcast link and of course while you're there pick up carlos Vieira's book knocking doors down 
with all the funds, 100% going to benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation and its programs, and more on that at carlosvierafoundation.org. And don't forget, in the archives, Lamar Odom. Yes, Lamar Odom, Carmen Car- Electra, Carmen Electra, my boo thing. Uh, also got the uh, the great uh, Brandon Novak in the uh, archives and some other great conversations that we've had, including Scott Stapp, lead singer of Creed, and so much more. So we thank you guys for listening. Please subscribe, leave us a five star rating and a review. And keep knocking doors down. Knocking doors down. Real people, real stories, real life. Real discussions of life struggles including addiction, relationships, finances, and more. But even more importantly, living with them, overcoming them, and conquering them. Celebrities, experts, and everyday people talk about how they were able to break through whatever life handed them by knocking doors down. New podcast episodes are available every Thursday. Subscribe now on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio app, or at kddmediacompany.com. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the knocking doors down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.